This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. An innovative fermenter that's 100% made in the USA. No cleaning or sanitizing required. The Genesis fermenter from Brewcraft is all of that. Just place the sanitary inner liner in the Genesis, fill with your wort, and pitch your yeast. That's it. Not to mention you can't break it, it has built-in handles, and the opening is almost 6 inches wide. The Genesis Fermenter from Brewcraft USA is truly innovative and can be purchased anywhere Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast? And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the brand new, released, finally here on your shelves, Homebrew All-Stars. Number one on Amazon yesterday. At least for a little while, so hey, we'll take it. Yeah, that's right. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. There we go. All right, on today's episode, we'll head to the pub to discuss more details about HomebrewCon. We'll talk about other beer news, including a revisit to our, uh, our trademark lawsuit, and talk a little bit about the, the recent anniversary of a certain German law. Uh, we'll take a Ooh. quick swing by the library to discuss an article that we found about compounds and dry hops, and then it's off to the lab where we'll be announcing our next experiment. And then in this week's interview segment, 
we're going to kind of take a slightly different tack. And instead of bringing you a big famous figure that everybody will know inside the homebrewing world or you have a good chance of knowing, we're going to bring you an important figure in my brewing career, a man by the name of Bruce Broad. So stay tuned for that. And finally, we're going to hit you up with another round of Ask Denny and Drew before we finally close out the show with our quick tip of the week. And this is the point where I always remind you to uh, support us on Patreon. You can do that by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and clicking on the Patreon link. You can give us any amount of money that uh, works for you. We use your money to uh, fund our experiments and uh, the experiments that the Igors are doing. And most importantly, to fund our charity. We've chosen the charity for the first part of 2016, and it's Freedom Service Dogs. They're a highly rated charitable group out of Colorado that rescues dogs from shelters and trains them to be service animals for folks with disabilities, including military vets. I just can't think of anything much better than that. So please throw us a few bucks that we can throw to the pooches, and we'll help everybody out. Uh, and as we approach the end of June, we'll be winding down the first half of the charity year. And we'd like to thank our patrons who've donated so far, and they've helped us raise nearly $200 for Freedom Service Dogs. So won't you help us get to our goal of at least $250 for this first go-around? Uh, whatever we collect by the end of June goes to the pups. We're throwing all those bones right to the dogs. After that, what's our next charity cause? You can help us decide by emailing podcast at experimentalbrew.com. More dogs? That's kind of Denny and I's thing. Yeah. But do you want us to save the cows? Well, ju <laughs> just remember, no matter what, even a buck a month helps us support our uh, charity causes and supports this podcast. So won't you give a buck? Yep, that's right. Uh, throw us uh, just a little bit of money. And if lots of people do it, we end up with a lot of money that we can uh, give to these dogs and help out both the dogs and the vets. It just doesn't get any better than that. What's the mail like this week, Drew? All right. Well... So a couple things, I've gotten uh, even more feedback on the weight loss story that we ran a couple of episodes back, uh, and I really do appreciate the stories that people are sharing with us, uh, because, again, I was hesitant to, to talk about that in that whole segment. I kind of felt maybe a little self-indulgent, but what I'm seeing and what I'm, what I'm really appreciating is that there are a lot of folks out there who are using me telling that story as a uh, sort of motivating force to go make some positive changes. So I, you know, I'm really excited about that. I'm happy about that. And I'm happy that people are out there making a change. I will just say, remember, you know, weight loss, weight management, it's a long con, not a short grift. So keep that in mind. <laughs> we'll all get there and stay there together. And then finally, uh, the other one that I had to, I had to include this one because of course I did. Uh, listener Ryan in Pennsylvania wrote, uh, wrote to me to say, Hey, Drew. I just wanted to drop you a note and let you know that I won a silver medal in the Philly Homebrew Cup Spice Herb Vegetable Ale category with my peanut butter jelly time recipe. Uh, my jello, uh, my peanut butter jelly time recipe. It also scored a 34 in Trash 26 in Pittsburgh the week prior. I know you've gotten some flack from Denny on the peanut butter beers category, but feedback on my version has been favorable. Up next, Cosmic Fluff. Cheers from Ryan. So you know what? There you go. Suck it, Dincenzo. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I'm I'm glad somebody likes that crap because it ain't me. 
So I think it's also <laughs> appropriate that uh, the beer won in a contest called Trash, you know. Uh, but, you know, that's that's all I'm going to say other than congratulations, Ryan. You must be a great brewer to do it with one of Drew's recipes. So, uh, <laughs> And you guys know that we actually really love each other. So, And we're going to prove it because we're heading off to the uh, pub together to grab a beer. We'll see you in just a minute. All righty, Drew and I are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA, drinking a couple beers. Uh, what's yours today, Drew? Uh, today I'm drinking my Saison Yorio. I, I don't know if that's the right way to say that hop name. I've never actually heard it say. J-A-R-R-Y-L-O. And since I live in a Spanish-speaking part of the world, I'm just going to say it like it's Spanish. So, Spanish Yorio. Since I live in the Pacific Northwest, I'm going to say Jerry Low. There you go. So... Anyway, the Saison J, uh, so just a nice uh, session Saison with a, with a funky, fun hop. Uh, it's got a really interesting aroma, and I'm, I'm kind of digging it. I, I have not used that hop yet, but I have some of them here. Uh, what can I expect with it? Goodness. I'm going to let you find out. <laughs> Why do I want to tell you? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. No, no hints, no hints. Me, I'm drinking an El Sully, a uh, fine, fine Mexican-style lager uh, put out by 21st Amendment down in San Francisco. Uh, big shout-out to Sully, who uh, handed each of us a six-pack when we were there visiting. So it's a highly enjoyable, easily drinkable beer. It's my favorite sort of beer, free and cold. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so uh, we want to just kind of like talk a bit more about the AHA Homebrew Con coming up in Baltimore, uh, June 9th through 11th. Uh, and you notice that I actually called it Homebrew Con this time. Uh, I've given up. If that's what they're going to call it, that's what I'll call it too, at least until I can talk them into something else. Anyway, we hope that you're going to be there. We're going to be speaking twice. We'll be speaking on uh, Thursday, June 9th at 2 p.m. and Saturday, June 11th, again at 2 p.m. We'll be at the Craftmeister booth right after the Thursday seminar. We'll be there from 3 to 4 p.m. doing a meet and greet. So come on by, say hi, uh, check out the Craftmeister cleaning products. And we'll be doing our live question and answer taping on Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Brewcraft booth on the trade show floor. So uh, please come on by there. It's uh, live questions and answers. Come on by and see if you can make us look more foolish than we make ourselves look. That is right after the AHA-sponsored forum meetup for various internet groups. That's going to be in the social club from 11.45 to 12.45, again on uh, Friday the 10th at the conference. So if you're in uh, in an online beer discussion forum, come on by and meet some of the other people who are there. Put a face to the name. Uh, We may even try and do a version of Drew's Troubleshooters Corner. If you have a beer that you want some advice on, bring it along. If you have a beer that's just plain freaking delicious, bring that along, too. Well, that's even better. And just in case that wasn't enough for you, 
We'll be doing a book signing before our Thursday talk at the Brewer's Publications booth. We'll be there from 11 a.m. until 12 p.m. So uh, if you're going to Homebrew Con, you'll have lots and lots of chances to come and see us and uh, try and make us look foolish. My only question is, at what point in time do we get to go to the conference? Yeah, well, that that is a, a good question, isn't it? Uh, you know, we're going to... Well, I guess we'll be there when we're given our seminars. That's true. And hey, you know, since we're both AHA members, we have the wonderful benefit that later we can go and listen to all the presentations. Yeah, that's true, man. It's really great since they started putting all the presentations online. Uh, Even if you miss some while you're there, you can catch up with them later. Okay, I guess it's uh, birthday party time. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess. So uh, last week, uh, as we record this, was apparently the... 500th anniversary of a certain German beer purity law, the Rhein, the Rheinhutzgebot. And I, of course, probably butchered the German, so whatever. Yeah, uh, I'm now, not even tr- going to try. Well, now, here's my real question. Is this a thing to celebrate, or is it not? What do you think, then? Yeah, that, that, is a, that is a darn good question. Um, I, I think most people are aware that uh, what's called a purity law wasn't necessarily about beer purity. It was uh, more about uh, taxes and keeping ingredients out of the hands of certain people and into the hands of other people. On the other hand, a lot of darn good beers have been made under it. So I kind of have mixed feelings. What about you? Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, okay, great. The law helped form the German industry. I mean, of course, I'm, first off, it's not a beer purity law. It wasn't. Uh, that's what it was intended. It was a protection act, a taxing act. It was, right. you know, all that sort of silly stuff. Uh, and then, I mean, and then originally it only applied to Bavaria until Bavaria merged with the rest of Germany and part of their requirements was basically, at least how I remember the story, uh, part of their requirements was, okay, great, we'll join you, but you also have to accept this law, which kind of did a hell of a number on a lot of the northern Germ- German European styles. So, I mean, look, great. They they have a wonderful world of Helles, Bach, Pilsner, you know, all these great things that are bu- built out of the basic four ingredients, which, of course, was really the original basic three before they figured out yeast. Uh, there are all sorts of exceptions hidden on the law, so German brewers aren't exactly following that sort of storybook version of the Reinhuskeboot that we know. But it really did kill off a lot of what I would consider to be important elements of creativity. Now, of course, I'm biased because I am the recipe guy. Yeah, I was going to say, man, I mean, where is the peanut butter Bach in Germany? I know. So, I don't know. To me, okay, great, whatever, but let's recognize the reality that the Reinhutzgebot is not a universally beloved thing. It's not even a universally beloved thing in Germany. Um, And it's sort of become such a hidebound stickler tradition thing that in a lot of ways it's done a hell of a number on the current German beer industry. Now, there is a rising movement of uh, German craft brewers who are coming up, who are kind of stretching some more of the boundaries. But even even there, and I, I saw a really great response from a German craft brewer online, and I wish I could go dig it up, but I'll dig it up before we post the podcast, uh, where they sort of called out the Reinhausgebot for not being what everybody thought it was and, and sort of being this antiquated thing with all these exceptions and da, 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 da. And as I'm reading the article, I was thinking, oh, okay, so, you know, here we go. We're going to have a German brewer who's talking about, 
you've restricted us from doing all of these wonderful things. And he talks about it. He talks about, hey, you know, look, we can't add coriander to the beer. We can't add orange peel. You know, we look over at, like what the Belgians are doing and they have all these wonderful things. But then it took a very German turn and it sort of surprised me. And it went down a path I had never really thought of before where he started to call for a law that was basically a natural law and argued that the definition of beer should be expanded to allow for the use of any natural ingredient, but at the same time striking out against things like the German brewing industry's use of polyclar, you know, uh, plastic particles to help find the beer, uh, which the Germans ruled was perfectly acceptable because it doesn't remain in the finished product. And that makes a lot of sense to me, you know? I mean, if it doesn't remain in the beer, then what's the issue? Well, yeah, but at the same time, I just thought it was, I thought it was interesting because like my perception was, oh, hey, look, you know, we got a German brewer who's out there who's going to talk about like all this stuff. Of, hey, you know, look, you know, this thing's holding us back. And that's what he was talking about. And then it took this other turn of like, it's holding us back, but we should still be <laughs> held back. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah. You know what, man? I, I would say that the, uh, you know, that was the German brewing law. The, uh, the no tie brewing law is, Use whatever the hell you want and don't be stupid about it. Well, unless it's apparently peanut butter. Well, I covered that in the second half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on. Uh, I think that uh, we need to talk a little bit more about uh, the the Moonlight lawsuit, huh? Yeah, Moonlight versus Moonlight. Uh, the yeah. it sounds like a detective agency divorce. Uh, <laughs> So last episode, we covered uh, Michael Fairbrother of Moonlight Meadery put out a call on the on the interwebs and the social medias to talk about, hey, you know, I'm getting sued over trademark claims uh, with uh, from Moonlight Brewing Company up in Windsor, California, Santa Rosa, California, that area. Uh, and, you know, buy some of my products and here's a special discount code. And we uh, we talked about it and we gave that out uh, to basically raise up some funds to, to deal with the issue. And... Brian Hunt, who is the owner of Moonlight, uh, who is not what I would call a uh, socially media adept person. He's never really cared about that side of the fence and has always been happy to have his little brewery up there in uh, the wine country. Uh, finally responded via uh, rate beer uh, to the article because Michael is very socially adept or social media adept and sort of hit the trail hard. And he finally responded via uh, rate beer basically giving his side of the story, which was, hey, you know, I founded my brewery in 1992. I had talked to Michael way back in the day. Uh, he's at all these beer events. So, you know, hey, it should all be in the same category. And, you know, sending it up to the courts to get clarification and that he wishes Michael success with his his meadery, but that he wants to protect his name, which is a fair point. But this, again, goes back to the point where, what we talked about last episode was, hey, it's kind of hard to see, you know, good people fighting and see the sides of both arguments. So that we wanted to call attention to the fact that Brian, Brian was coming out with his response. And I mean, it's a fairly reasonable response, but at the same time, it's kind of like, Ugh, I wish you guys could work this out. Uh, but I mean, who knows? Because this is the first time I recall seeing a trademark fight that was really down between two people sort of on the same level. Normally, whenever we see uh, these sorts of trademark fights, it's something like, hey, uh, Yellowtail Wines out of Australia is suing 
Ballast Point because of the fact they had a beer called Yellowtail. And Ballast Point, being much smaller than the Yellowtail Wine Company at the time, uh, this was well before their billion-dollar IPO, uh, changed the name of the beer because they couldn't afford to fight it. And, of course, part of the thing that everybody was talking about at the time was, hey, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Wine versus beer, they're different categories of things. Remember, trademark law is a sort of a weird, intricate thing, and there are categories, so you can't just say, hey, I own the word Yahoo for everything. You know, you can only say, I own the word Yahoo for, you know, a website, that sort of thing. Uh, and so everybody's like, hey, beer, wine, different. But it turns out that at the time, I was kind of, kind of wonder if Yellowtail's planning on making a move into beer, and lo and behold... Last year, Yellowtail made a move into beer. That was the reason that they launched their C uh, and ah. So in this case, uh, this is the first time I can really recall seeing one of these fights that's kind of happening on equal level, and I like both sides of the the, the issue. And uh, hopefully, they can come to an amicable amicable conclusion. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, re- yeah, I, and you know, sometimes it's kind of clear cut which side you want to be on, and this is really not like that at all. So, uh, all you can really do is wish them all the best of luck, and like you say, hope that they can uh, conclude this thing in a friendly way without uh, too much expense on either side. Because I know that uh, this kind of thing can really, really rack up the bills. So, yeah. Well, but regardless, but regardless, don't forget. If you do get a chance to try either uh, group's products, uh, Moonlight Brewing Company, which is mostly found up around the Bay Area and San Francisco, or Moonlight Meadery, uh, products where he's been very aggressive about expanding out pretty close to all of the U.S. and some foreign markets as well, both of them make excellent products. So uh, don't don't miss the opportunity to have to have their their beverages. That's right. That's right. Support them both. Uh, or pick a side and support that one. Okay, we're going to finish up these beers, head over to the library, and talk about an article that uh, discusses a new way to think about uh, dry hopping. So now we're in one of my favorite rooms in the world, the library. And that just made my grandmother roll over in her grave. Uh, <laughs> that's right. I am the grandson of a librarian. So therefore, I spent many, many hours in the, in the library over the years. And this is the part where we talk about all things bookish and articleish about home brewing. So, Denny, why don't we talk a little bit about this article, what we found on uh, Scott Janish's blog. Yeah, like Drew said, this uh, this comes from a blog by a guy uh, named Scott Janish. We'll uh, we'll put a link to it on the website, so you don't have to go looking it up on your own. And uh, what he is talking about is that besides the cohumulone, humulone, adhumulone that we're familiar with that isomerize in the boil to provide bitterness to hops, you can actually get bitterness from your dry hops. Uh, this is something that I've kind of like detected for a long time, but didn't really have an explanation for it. And uh, Scott lays out what's going on. Real quick, let's let's lay in some groundwork because the traditional traditional homebrew wisdom about dry hopping is dry hopping will add essential oils from the hops. It will give you hop flavor and hop aroma, 
but it never will give you bitterness, right? Because everybody's always said, oh, in order to get bitterness, you have to isomerize the alpha acids that are in the hops in order to actually get that bitter bite. That's right. That's right. Um, But it turns out that hops contain very small amounts of oxidized alpha acids that are called humulinones, um, and they form spontaneously via the oxidation of the alpha acids in the hop, and they also play a role in uh, beer bitterness. Uh, In fact, they're one of the most abundant oxidized hop acids in aged hops, and it turns out that they are much more water-soluble than any of the other bittering compounds, so that you can actually extract a lot more bitterness from them. Now, the interesting thing is that it's kind of a a different type of bitterness. And the other thing that is very interesting, and uh, Stan Hieronymus has written about this also, is that uh, they also reduce the amount of iso-alpha acids in your beer, uh, replacing them with these uh, humulinone bittering compounds that are, are smoother and mellower than, uh, than the traditional bittering compounds you get from hops uh, when you boil them. Uh, it's, it's really, it's a very interesting article, and uh, what Scott does is he ties this into the production of the infamous New England IPA uh, and uh, kind of uses this to account for the characteristics that you get in one of those New England IPAs. Yeah, so what it what it really feels like. So he does a really great summary at the at the end of the article. Uh, there is a definite tie-in with the fact that this is uh, an oxidative character. It's more prevalent in pellets than in leaf hops, uh, and part of that's just because right. when they pelletize the hops, they bust everything up into into wee tiny little pieces, including the lupulin glands. Uh, says here, uh, uh, humulinones are about 66% as bitter as iso-alpha acids. So one part per million of the humulinone would equal about 0.66 IBUs. Uh, they're more soluble, as Denny mentioned, in, in beer. Uh, they give a smoother, less intense bitterness, almost a, a sweet uh, touch to the bitterness. And the, uh, the one I thought was interesting was that the... Bittering increase in terms of IBU bitterness seems to only happen if the original beer is low in IBUs as well, which is where we get the tie-in with the New England IPAs because the idea is that where you're getting a lot of these beers that have sort of massive late hop charges to give a lot of hop flavor but without a lot of IBU contribution, this might be another way of kind of bumping up some of that bitterness. And... uh, the dry hopping itself also apparently raises the pH of the beer, uh, which also helps increase the perception of bitterness. One of the one of the interesting statements here in Scott's paper is, amazingly, in the high IBU beer, as the humulinone in the beer increased, the iso-alpha acid content actually decreased. Uh, so in the high IBU case, although the beer had increased in IBUs from the humulinones, the reduction in iso-alpha acids basically canceled it out. <laughs> and th- there's no real explanation of, of why this process occurs and how it occurs, but apparently it's pretty well documented that it does. Uh, a really interesting concept, huh? Yeah, and I think this is going to tie into some of the things that, we, that we've got coming down the pike. But it also really uh, says to me, okay, uh, 
this might be part of uh, part of what I've always thought was going on with some of these late hop beers, right? You remember uh, when this when this whole process first started, you had people like completely eliminating sixty minute bittering additions and just trying to jam, you know, essentially a metric ass load of hops into the end of the boil to get their right. bitterness, right? Because hey, look, here's this IBU thing. And what was interesting to me was I always thought that those beers were lacking a certain sort of backbone to the bitterness, but they were still, but they still had a a bitterness to it. And so maybe part of what's going on, uh, what was going on here was that because the IBUs were so low, we were getting more of that bitter flavor from the, the uh, humulinones as opposed to isoalpha acid, which gives that slightly different bitterness. And I was kind of missing that sort of more traditional isoalpha acid bitterness that gives a little bit more oomph. Yeah, I mean, I and I have found that when I tried to make beers that were exclusively late hop, they just did not have enough bitterness bite for my tastes. So I ended up having to add some hops at the beginning too, but not a lot. So, uh, you know, it, in effect, it was a low IBU beer in the boil, which is where the humulinones make the most difference in, in showing up later. I think this is a really interesting article. Uh, Scott has a lot of well, uh, well-researched well links and uh, actual references off to uh, brewing journals and Society of Chemists articles. So really well-researched, really interesting, and I think actually calls for some uh, playing. Yeah, I, I think that I think we have some experiment material there. And we will post a link to both Scott's article and uh, Stan Hieronymus's article on our website. You guys read them both. If you get uh, some ideas for experiments from them, shoot us an email at uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com and suggest an experiment. And so now I guess it's time to uh, wander over to the lab to discuss one of Drew's favorite subjects, which is Saison. Yes, indeed. Time to fire up the Jacob's Ladder. (laughs) All right, here we go. Okay, the science-y type music and sparking uh, electricity signifies that we are in the lab now where it's dangerous and spooky. And speaking of dangerous and spooky, Drew's going to talk about our next experiment coming up. Yeah, so, all right, this is the, uh, this is the one where I get to put uh, my ideas on the line, so to speak, my beliefs, my uh, assets, however you want to put it. So, all right, look, let's face it. Uh, if you have a recipe coming from me, if, if you ask me to generate an idea, there's about a 50% chance that my initial take on any idea will be, well, you know, you can make a Saison to do that. Uh, just who I am. I've been nuts about Saisons since, well, really since before I started brewing. I think I first had my first taste of Saison in 97, uh, 98, uh, when I was at the Crown City Brewing Company in Pasadena, California, about two two miles from where I live now. And the brewer there made a Saison on the system, had no clue what this was, but it was an intensely peppery, interesting, earthy beer, and I wanted more of it. And he started to kind of give me some of the uh, the different Saison uh, guidelines and parts out there. Now, this was early days, back before anybody knew really what Saison was, and before there was 20,000 Saison strains available to everybody. So... Fast forward a couple of years and let's look at where we're at now, where it seems that if you want to open up a craft brewery, 
you pretty much have to have on your menu if you want to be a hip craft craft brewery. Uh, you need to have uh, like three different styles of IPA, a double IPA for people uh, for people to enjoy, and then a uh, couple of bourbon barrel something or others, and also at least a saison, or if you want to be fancy, a farmhouse, with or without bread. Take your pick. So that's you know it's kind of funny to see how that's changed now. The Saison yeast, the, the main ones that everybody knows, the White Yeast 3724 Belgian Saison and White Labs 565 Belgian Saison 1, uh, both have reputations for being temperamental. Uh, and by temperamental, what I mean is that people will say, hey, look, if you ferment these, these yeasts and you don't treat them exactly right, they'll ferment like gangbusters for three days and then they'll die out and they'll stall and stop fermenting for two weeks. And then if you wait two weeks, They'll come back alive and they'll finish the beer out and they'll go down to the insanely low final gravities that you want to saison to hit, right? So something below 10-10. Now, I've never had that problem. Or, hold on, let me, let me correct that and make a more truthful statement. I've rarely had that problem. And I was always puzzled as to why. And finally, I had a conversation with a couple of the folks from both Y-East and White Labs. And, you know, these are people with PhDs who know a lot more about the actual specifics of what yeasts are doing. And what they told me was, well, you know, these yeasts are back pressure sensitive. In other words, CO2 toxicity, the pressure from the airlock or a blow off hose, all these things kind of combine together to stun the yeast and drop them down out of solution. And if you think about it, part of this makes sense, right? Because if you're generating back pressure and the yeast stop generating CO2 for a period of time during the stall, eventually the CO2 stabilizes and outgasses with the environment based on the temperature that you're at. And if you're running a sort of typical Saison profile where you're starting cool and then allowing the beer to ramp up warm, warm, warm wort or warm liquid holds less CO2 in solution. So possibly you're dropping back below some sort of magical level. So the advice I'd gotten, and turns out this was something I was already doing, was Saison yeast, the traditional ones, the 3724 and the 565, not 3711 French Saison, which is a monster, they do best in an open fermentation. So remove the airlock, remove the blow-off tube, open up your carboy and put a big old piece of aluminum foil over the top of it and let it go. So what we're going to do here with this experiment is we are going to test whether or not that's actually a thing. So, what our, uh, what our brewers are going to do, our Igors and you guys out there in the listening land who want to join in are more than welcome to join in with us on this. We are going to have them brew my Saison Experimental, which is a very simple, straightforward uh, Saison. Uh, they will brew enough of it to have two equal portions. Uh, the wort will go into similar fer uh, fermenters. Uh, they will get a similar pitch of the Saison yeast. And I think in this one we are calling for uh, uh, White Labs. Uh, I think we're calling for the White Labs strain or White Yeast. Um, oh, sorry. We're, we're, allowing the, uh, we're allowing the Igors to choose between the two in this particular one as long as they note it. So are the, are the, are the two pretty much exactly the same as far as you know? There's a lot of theories that they are actually sister strains. 
uh, that uh-huh. they're both that they're both you know elements that you would find in Dupont, uh, and obviously isolated at different times. So who knows? Uh, but uh, to me, I've always actually find I make the best saisons by pitching both. <laughs> but that can be a little expensive. <laughs> but regardless, beer into uh, beer into fermenters, pitch the exact same uh, uh, yeast, uh, exact same amounts, and then both of them get treated to the exact same fermentation profile. The one difference is one of the fermenters will have a traditional airlock. The other fermenter will just have a piece of aluminum foil on top of it. We will have them force chill the wort down to the low 60s, so 63 to 64, which is where I traditionally take it. Pitch the yeast, cover the uh, cover the fermenters uh, as specified, and then allow them to stay cool for the first three days of fermentation. And then allow the, the fermenters to ramp up. Uh, going up into the 70s or 80s, depending upon your environment. Want the Igors to record their fermentation temperatures so that we know exactly what what it is they saw. And record the gravities. And then do everything that you'd expect. Wait for everything to finish out. Put everything in the kegs. Record how long it took for everything to finish out and whether or not there was a stall. Put everything into kegs or bottles. Package and blind triangle test to see whether or not people can tell the difference. So out of this experiment, we're hoping that we'll see a couple of different factors because the blind triangle test is only going to be one part of this. Uh, what we want to be able to compare about is, okay, what was fermentation length like? What were the final gravities like? Were there any sort of performance issues that we saw? And also how do they taste, which will come out of the triangle test. So what you're saying is, is that it's possible we can end up with beers with no noticeable difference, but, uh, but maybe how they got to that end would be radically different. It's entirely possible. That's part of the reason why I want people to collect that data because I'm curious about it. Uh, because I mean, let's face it in the past, everybody had the sort of the philosophy of, uh, okay, well with these days on use, you either just have to patiently wait them out or go and pitch something neutral uh, into the beers when they stall out. So mm-hmm. yeah, let, let the Saison yeast get established, produce some saison characters, and then go hit with White Labs 001 or US05 or some fairly neutral Belgian strain and let that finish the fermentation. In fact, some of the saison blends that you see out there are pretty much that in a jar. Um, and I've never really been a huge fan of that particular approach because I think it sort of mucks with the character of the beer. So. Yeah, it it would, and that was that was definitely the conventional advice when I uh, when I began brewing, um, and and let's face it, there there are uh, brewers who make these beers without doing any of that, so it's got to be possible. So the this experiment is kind of like about figuring out what it takes to do that. Indeed. So I'm I'm really curious to see what people find. I know that there's uh, some other experiments going on at the same time surrounding this issue, but I've, I really do uh, really do hope to see whether or not uh, I am actually full of it or if there's something to what I'm telling people, because this is the way I've produced saisons for years, uh, and I'm particularly happy with my, my saisons. So, uh, yeah, now I got to put up or shut up. Well, and the, the third option is, of course, Yes, you are full of it, but you're right about this thing. That's true. I will yeah. grant you that third option. All <laughs> right. So there you go. There's the experiment. The write-up will be online. We'll link to the write-up. Uh, really, I hope, uh, you know, since the warmer weather is, is here for most everybody, uh, we're really hoping that we can see some really interesting results. I would love to have 
everybody who's interested in doing this experiment come on board and do this experiment. So uh, reach out to us at uh, Igor at experimentalbrew.com or podcast ex- at experimentalbrew.com and let us know if you'd like to join in the experiment and sign up and bring us some results. Yeah, and I'm particularly excited about this because there are a bunch of people in my club who are going to be doing this experiment. So uh, we'll have some real firsthand uh, information here to pass along to you. And with that, he says in the dulcet tones, it's time to head over to the lounge for our interview this week. sitting here in the comfy chairs in the lounge getting ready to uh listen to the interview this week uh as we keep telling you over and over again we have just come out with a book called homebrew all stars it just came out uh, one of our hopes with the book was to introduce uh people to the not so obvious all stars now there's a lot of people in the book you've heard of and it's really easy to get excited when you're talking to someone like a like a known multiple ninkasi winner like uh, gordon strong a uh, well-regarded brewer like Vinny, uh, an amazing author like john palmer but you know there are a whole lot of other fantastic brewers out there that you may not have ever even heard of uh, maybe competition isn't their thing. Maybe they're not self-promoters like somebody we know here on this show. But there's a ton like, like of knowledge. On the show. <laughs> there's a ton of knowledge hidden in the corners of the brewing world, and we're hoping to be able to dig it out and present you with some real gems. All right. And so for our inaugural edition of Unknown All-Stars, I don't know, does that sound like a good title? Eh, maybe we'll keep it for a while. I'll put uh, some reverb on it. It'll sound great. Say, say it one yeah. more time here. Yeah. Unknown All-Stars. All-Stars. Oh, yeah. All right. So for our first edition of this, I sat down with uh, Bruce Brode, um, a man I'm very, very, very much considered to be one of my brewing mentors. Uh, again, the book was inspired in part by the fact that I used to run around and brew with everybody because I felt it was the best way to, to learn something. Uh, and Bruce is one of those guys I brewed with a lot, uh, him and his brewing partners. They brew on a massive rig. You'll hear about it. Uh, but Bruce is a longtime member of my homebrew club, the Maltos Falcons. Uh, he was the president of the club back in the early 90s, uh, so way back in the dark ages of homebrewing. Uh, he was also uh, responsible for helping to shape some of the early aspects of the BJCB guidelines that we all know and love nowadays. In fact, if you look on the BJCB guidelines, you should still see Bruce's name in there. At least you did on the last row. Uh, I'll go double check about this row. Um, he is amazingly talented. He's incredibly knowledgeable. Uh, and I mean, we, we go and we do beer tastings. He runs a mead tasting for our club. And every time we do a tasting, Bruce, uh, by trade, is a paralegal. And he breaks out these massive legal pads and takes these wonderful written descriptions of everything that we've tasted so that everybody can remember what the heck it was that we had and it puts them up online and in the newsletter. So really, really key. I love the guy and I really thought it'd be a damn shame not to share him with y'all. So I sat down with him a couple months ago in the back of our homebrew shop just before a club meeting and snagged a little bit of uh, hopefully his wisdom for you. So 
Before we launch into the interview, though, if you have an unknown or a not-as-well-known person that you think is an all-star and that you think should be featured here on the show, other than you, we know you're a rock star because you're listening to the podcast, but you need to share the spotlight with other people. Just feel free. Drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Reach out wherever you can find us. Let us know who's the rock star in your brewing life. All right? So without further ado, let's go sit down and listen to some brews. Just to give everybody a little bit of background, uh, a lot of homebrew uh, podcasts out there talk a lot with brewers, talk a lot with uh, big name homebrewers, you know, people that you, you know for various things that they're doing, like uh, folks like Gordon who win, you know, multiple Ninkazi awards and you know, things that uh, put their name up on the radar. Uh, one of the things that we're hoping for is to actually uh, do a series of interviews with homebrewers that we think are important for people to know or things that, uh, or people that uh, you can learn from, uh, very much in line with what we're doing with uh, the new book. So I am currently sitting in the office at the Home Beer Wine Cheese Making Shop uh, here in Woodland Hills, aka the shop that uh, I am nominally headquartered out of, the shop of the Maltos Falcons. And I'm sitting here with one Mr. Bruce Brode, uh, who is a longtime uh, member of the club and somebody I think you should know. So, hi, Bruce. Hi. All right, so Bruce, real quick, uh, since uh, most of our listeners have probably never uh, met you or, uh, you know, Give a brief introduction to who you are and how you got started in this silly hobby. Well, I have tried to keep myself well hidden. Um, I started home brewing in 1984, the year that the Olympic Games came to Los Angeles, and it was just uh, two or three months before the Games showed up in uh, summer of that year. Um, and uh, fairly quickly encountered the Maltos Falcons, who were based at this uh, supply shop, which was really the only one in the area at the time. I think the shop opened in something like 1971, mm -hmm. so it's been around a long time. Um, and uh, started coming to meetings for a while before I actually joined the club. You know, I finally dawned on me that if I joined the club, I got a 10% discount on supplies, so duh, it's a no-brainer. Well, I was going to say, it, it, it never, ever, ever doubt the power of cheapacity in terms of mode and uh, homebrewers. That's true. So I uh, finally joined the club, I think, in 1986 and uh, uh, found some interesting people in this club and found some people I could definitely learn from and started getting more and more involved in things. And in uh, the, Around that time, um, the uh, BJCP got started as a joint project of the AHA and the Home Wine and Beer Trade Association. Um, and uh, I got interested in that and uh, studied for the exam. The exam date came up and I had a conflict, so I did it all over again the next year and uh, I managed to get into that program. And uh, uh, I don't know what else to say. It's, it's, Homebrewing is a fun hobby. You encounter some really great people, very knowledgeable people, people who come from a lot of different backgrounds, not just, you know, engineering and that sort of thing, but you get code writers, you get lawyers, you get chefs, you get all these interesting people that you can learn a lot of different things from. And that's why I've always been interested in the hobby. And, you know, let's face it, beer, among all of the world's beverages, is one of the most social. You look at the great beer cultures, they invariably are a big part of the community that brings people together. So it's uh, something I, I like that way. Well, I was going to say, yeah, because I'm in day-to-day -day life, I'm an engineer. Day-to-day -day life, you're paralegal, right? Correct. So, and yeah, you're totally right. I mean, we've got building engineers, we've got people who actually work with their hands for a living, we've got people who have never turned a wrench in their entire lives. That's right. <laughs> so now, uh, 
with the BJCP, uh, I forget, you're a master judge, right? Uh, that's correct. All right. So the master judge, done a lot of work. And in fact, uh, you were partially responsible for a number of the guidelines over the years. Yeah, that's an interesting story. Um, in the fall of 1991, I had been elected uh, incoming president of the Maltos Falcons. And I had a project going. We needed, I was on our competition committee, and we really needed better style guidelines for our homebrewing competition. So I started to revamp them and looked at a lot of different sources and came up with something that was better than what we had. It was a bit more comprehensive. And uh, for the first time, we actually tried to list some commercial examples of some of these great beer styles that people were interested in, whether they were German lagers or English ales or that sort of thing. And uh, it's, it was very interesting when the BJCP finally adopted some guidelines. They used some that had been in use in uh, the New England states for the New England Home Brewer of the Year, kind of a regional uh, competition or, or, or compilation of different competitions that they had. Well, it turns out, you know, in those days the Falcons had a relationship with uh, the main uh, brewing club in Boston, the, uh, the Boston Work Processors, and uh, uh, they had actually used the guidelines I wrote as the basis. They fleshed them out in a few areas. For instance, uh, Beer de Garde was a big thing that they liked, so they added a little section on that. And uh, that got used as the basis for the first set of uh, BJCP guidelines. Um, and the first time we revamped them through the BJCP, I was on that committee that did that, and that was a major sort of restructuring of all of it. And uh, it's been revamped several times since then. So, I, yeah, I was involved in, in a lot of the creation of the guidelines that started to be used in the 1990s. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know that uh, prior to the current revision, I know your name was still listed on the guidelines. Uh, I think they list all of the people who've participated in the various revisions, yeah, I think. Okay. So there you go, folks. If you if you look at your BGSP guidelines and you see the name Bruce Broad, now you have a voice attached to it. <laughs> um, so. I was going to say, before, before those guidelines started to appear, both uh, the ones that, that you were had a hand in with the club and the ones that the warp processors had, and then finally the BJSP ones, uh, looking back at the records, it seemed like you know a lot of the competitions, the guidelines were very, very broad and very, very simple, right? You know, like Yeah, there were probably <clears throat> seven or eight major categories. They tended to reflect what people were brewing at the time, a lot of ale styles, uh, maybe a lager style or two because uh, our club has a long history of uh, brewers who are interested in brewing lager beers. Um, I remember when we first added a Belgian uh, ale style, and I think we got like seven entries in that category. It was, it was a better uh, uh, showing than we, than we anticipated and got some pretty good beers. So we've tried to kind of grow and fashion guidelines uh, in the Maltos Falcons anyway uh, to reflect what kinds of beers that our members and the folks who enter our competitions um, are brewing and uh, also to recognize historical styles that people are interested in and to provide some styles that are kind of open categories where people can show off their creative skills whether it's wood aging or trying to create a, an ancient beer style uh, or recreate it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I was going to say, I remember looking at like some of the very, very early Mayfair competitions, and uh, for those who aren't in the Falcons, the Mayfair is our big annual competition every year. It used to be um, called the Springfest. Yeah, time, I think, uh, you know, usually get somewhere around 500 entries, and so uh, big competition, big effort. But I remember like looking at some of the early results of the Mayfair, where uh, late 70s, early 80s, and yeah, the guidelines were uh, ale, light, dark. <laughs> Water, basic, light, right. dark, exactly. Stout, yeah. <laughs> other. 
right. <laughs> they, were, they were pretty basic. But, and, uh, and like even uh, even category distinctions for all grain versus extract. You know things right. things have gone completely by the way. So, so yeah, it makes me laugh. Um, all right, so. I uh, always love to ask this question because uh, so far there's a, a running joke about uh, everybody's favorite, but what is your favorite curse word? Favorite curse word? Oh, hmm. <laughs> that usually comes up when I'm driving in L.A. traffic. Uh, probably asshole. <laughs> so, all right, uh, by the way, for the record, Bruce is the first one not to choose the word f***. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Unless it's a big asshole we're talking about. Yeah, well, and and, and LA, tra LA traffic will definitely uh, uh, definitely bring it out in you. Oh, yeah. All right, so now, you, obviously you said you've been involved in homebrewing for a good long while now, since 1984. Correct. Uh, so I think you actually have either as many years or more years of brewing experience as both Denny and I put together. So, wow. Um, when did you first discover beer? Because that would have been, uh, like, good beer, like, yeah, because that would have been a long time ago and what a lot of people would consider to be sort of the dark ages of... Yeah, well, I was still in college, um, and uh, I got a teaching gig in Aspen, Colorado for the summer that was going to run for about nine weeks. Uh, on a, I was a music student, and I was running a musical ensemble at a, a, a summer music school in Aspen. And... Uh, I remember uh, this was this was in 1976. It was the bicentennial year, and so I spent the Fourth of July up in Aspen. And I remember, you know, they everybody crowded into the city park, and they shot fireworks off of Aspen Mountain behind the town. And of course, the big Coors truck rolled up. And, but the beer I kind of discovered up there uh, through a friend of mine that I that I came to know while we were there, another uh, another music student and instructor, was uh, Bass Ale. Yeah, he was a, he was a great fan of it. I think he was from the San Francisco area, and I had to admit it was pretty good beer and a lot better than the fizzy pale lagers that uh, that I'd encountered before then. Well, bass bringing you into the community, and and so you said that was 1976. So that took another eight years before you got the bug to actually start making your own. Yeah, and that was interesting. I had a I had a good friend, a fellow musician that uh, I'd spent some time with in high school and that sort of thing, and he. Uh, moved from the LA area up to uh, Berkeley I think and uh, while he was up there he got interested in you know making all his own food and all of this and part of that was brewing his own beer and he was buying supplies from a store there called Wine and the People uh, which was run by a guy named Byron Birch <laughs> a guy who I consider the kind of the godfather of California home brewing he passed away last summer yep. uh, at the age of 75 but uh, uh, my friend David had done some brewing up there, and then he decided he was going to go on a year-long trip around the country, just hitchhiking and this sort of thing. And when he got back to L.A., it, actually, before he took off on that on that trip, he asked me to hang on to the bit of brewing equipment he had. He had an open-top primary fermenter and a bottle capper and a few other things. So I just stashed it in my garage, and when he got back, I said, Hey, David, uh, you know, you've got some uh, homebrewing supplies and equipment here, and I'm interested in uh, learning how to brew beer. And so he said, okay, and we came out to the shop here and uh, got a few things and uh, started brewing in the spring of 1984. Well, now, obviously you started with these small mains, and, and we've brewed together, and actually, you know, the story of us brewing together is one of the, one of the things I use when, uh, <laughs> when I pitched the, the book that came, uh, that's coming out uh, soon, uh, Homebrewing All-Stars. Uh, because, you know, literally it was, 
I think I was still a relatively new brewer and was like running around putting myself in everybody's breweries and looking at like what they were doing uh, because I figured that's the best way to learn. So sure. for uh, our listeners, I know you said you started on you know just some simple simple gear, but now obviously you've uh, accumulated more stuff over time. Uh, what are you brewing with now? Well, uh, the brewery that we have um, is about twice the size of the average home brewery. It's a, it, we routinely brew about 20 gallons of beer. Well, and it's you and a team, right? Yeah, there's usually two or three of us that are brewing on it, so we've got plenty of places for the various fractions of, of wort to, to go for fermenting. Um, it's a pretty manual brewery. We do have a pump. We only use it for two things. Uh, we use it for pumping sweet wort out of the grant, either to recirculate into the louder ton or to pump it up into the kettle to get the boil started. We also use it on a low setting just to help move uh, uh, the uh, wort through the wort chillers so we can get a little bit faster uh, cooling time uh, on, our, uh, on our beer. Um, everything else, it's, it's a bottom-fired mash, separate mash and louder tons. We actually do a physical transfer of the mash uh, into a louder ton. It gives us a lot of flexibility. Um, that whole stage of, of uh, moving the mash into the louder ton allows us to do some things. For instance, when we brew a dark ale like a porter or a stout, a nice thing to do is to have a cooker mash on the side of some flake barley and or some oatmeal. And what we can do is lay some uh, foundation water in our louder ton and then dump the cooked cereal in there and then dump the mash in there. The, the cooked cereal doesn't really get exposed to diastatic enzymes, and so you get that kind of starchy, creamy sweetness, you know, run off into the wort you're going to boil up. So it gives you that nice creamy middle that I think is a great uh, balance point in, in those uh, dark ales that have so many kind of burnt edges on them. Yeah, so for the listeners, since I, since I brewed on this, the thing that Bruce is describing is, Instead of having you know sort of the traditional three vessel system that a lot of home brewers do, or the hell even the brewing a bag thing that a lot of brewers are doing nowadays, uh, you have an HLT, you have your mash kettle that uh, has a giant uh, valve on. I remember like two, two inch uh, uh, fitting with a big ball valve. Yeah, yeah. this is easily the most massive uh, valve you've ever seen outside of a professional brewery, and you use that to allow the the complete mash grains and all to flow out into a separate water ton. Right, and then that from that louder ton, you do your sparge and everything else, and into your boil kettle, and from there the, the mash ton doubles as a boil kettle. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I forgot that. There, right. There's that whole process of having to clean out the boil kettle. So yeah, uh, and in a lot of ways, it's very. The other place I've seen that sort of system is over in Belgium. Yeah. You know, right. There are actually a number of small breweries that that, uh, that do it that way. If they're going to do a physical mash transfer, that's that's what they do. They use that main kettle not only as a boiler. Uh, but also as their mash done. Well, and you think about it, it's cheap and easy to build a water ton. Building, yeah. uh, building yeah. a vessel to take fire and heat up and all that sort of stuff is actually fairly expensive. Well, if you want stuff. me to describe the system, our main uh, kettle that we mash in and boil in is uh, holds 32 gallons if you filled it all the way to the top. So it gives us some headroom to, to, for mashing and boiling. Um, it has this big 2-inch uh, fitting and then rotating 90 degrees from that it has a half-inch fitting, so we can use that for running the word off when we're done boiling. Um, the louder ton is a 160-quart uh, marine uh, ice chest with a uh, braided stainless steel loop in it to separate the liquid from the solid. And uh, then we have, a, I think, a 100-liter um, uh, kettle for our, our hot liquor bag. Now, if I'm, if I'm remembering the story correctly, 
the kettle and the valve assembly and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you you built up this system like well before there were all these homebrew supplies out there. You know, like selling like Blickman kettles and yeah. Well, else. we we acquired the main kettle. Uh, my main brewing partner and I pooled our tax refund money, and uh, we went down to a local. Um, supplier we were looking for used gear and he had some used stuff but none of it really appealed to us and we we learned that he also was a manufacturer's rep for um, a company that made you know stainless steel kettles that we could consider buying something new and we looked at some of the stuff he had there and we liked what we saw and so we wound up ordering a new kettle from a manufacturer in Michigan um, that specialized in making kettles that were used in the cosmetics industry. And it turns out because of the concern about impurities and that sort of thing, it's basically sanitary grade construction, like, like dairy equipment or that sort of thing. So we ordered one of their stock kettles and had these two fittings put on at the factory. And the workmanship is really great. You look at the, the welds of these fittings and everything is ground down very, very smooth. There's no place for any bacteria to hide or that sort of thing. So it's, I call it a piece of American industrial artwork. Okay. And uh, it's uh, it's great 304 stainless. It's uh, you know it's it's indestructible really, and it's it's served us very well for many years now. Well, I was gonna say yeah. How many how many years now? Because I know I think we acquired that about 1994, and it was probably a year and a half, two years before we actually really brewed with that kettle because we had to acquire some other things to really make the system work. That's why we call our brewery the Forever Brewery because it seems like it took us forever to get it put together to the point where we brew the kind of beer and the volume of beer and that sort of thing that we wanted. Well, there you go. Alright, yeah, so uh, good luck to everybody out there trying to get a kettle uh, that you find nowadays from your homebrew slayer to last, uh, you know, for that many years. Alright, so uh, one of my favorite questions that I ask everybody, um, omitting the word balance, describe your brewing philosophy. Uh, my brewing philosophy, well, um, we like variety. We like to challenge ourselves to try brewing different styles all the time, or even to kind of perfect some of the recipes that we've done in the past that, that turned out well. Um, uh, we, we like variety. Um, and and uh, there are some styles we haven't really investigated. The sour beers, I like to joke that, well, yeah, we can do those on somebody else's brewery located at least three miles downwind. Uh, but. Uh, it's not that I don't like those beers, but you know, particularly the the different uh, fermentation organisms. You know, I don't want them cross-contaminating my stuff so that I wind up with uh, you know a brewery that only produces sour beers. So that that's my only concern there. Um, but we've uh, uh, we 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 haven't investigated a lot of the non-sour Belgian styles yet, but we're we're getting there. I think one of our next projects is going to be a I'll probably do a, a Belgian triple as our sort of first-running beer, and then do a a, uh, an Abbey Blonde maybe as a second running spear from the same brew. Well, I was going to say, I, from what I remember of uh, how you guys were, you do a lot of first and second running type spears. Well, we have the capacity to do that, and uh, sometimes you get two quite different beers out of it. If, for instance, you do a side mash, and then you run off your, your first runnings, and then you take your side mash and add that to what's already in the louder ton, stir it back up, let the bed resettle, run that off as a second beer, boil it separately, hop it separately, you get something that can be quite different from what the first running beer is. So we get two different styles from the same brewing uh, uh, session, and that, that's, uh, that, that helps us with our quest for variety. Well, and, was good. and your quest for variety is also driven by the fact that you guys have a couple of big parties every year. Yeah, it's our way of kind of uh, introducing people to homebrew and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. So it's nice to have a lineup of kegs so that 
you know, people can try different things. Yeah, he's being modest here. There's not only a lineup of different kegs, there's a lineup of different foods, and every every party has a different theme. Well, and we're home winemakers, too, yeah. so we have some homemade wines and meads there as well. And, and uh, you know, Bruce alluded to it earlier about being a musical student, but you guys also have the, you're, you're the headquarters of the Maltos Falcons Brewers Band in a lot of ways. Yeah. And you have a lot true. of musically inclined friends, so your yes. party has beer, food, wine, mead, and a crap ton of music a going. A lot of live music yeah. of various different styles, yeah. It's, you know, it's uh, it's like a festival. It's like a neighborhood festival, really. So. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, you do the complete uh, picture. All right. Um, so, uh, which beer do you find yourself longing to drink? Um, it probably depends on the time of year, but actually a good Pilsner is, is something that, uh, that I really enjoy, particularly in the hotter months. And Southern California has a lot of warm days, so... A well-made pilsner is, is very refreshing. It's a, it goes with food well, uh, but there are a lot of different styles that I like. Uh, you know, a stronger beer, you know, in the evening when I'm working my computer could be a Bach beer, could be a double IPA, uh, could be a, you know, an Abbey double or something. Those are all good too. Um, uh, I get a craving for a good stout or a porter uh, from time to time. Uh, uh, a lot I, of different things. I, I think we're seeing why the variety. Uh argument is part of what drives your brewing. <laughs> sure, sure. I like a lot of different styles and uh, you know it's I don't really always come back to the same style. I'm always looking for different variants on styles even in the the commercial craft beers that I buy uh, because I like to try and keep my knowledge uh, in shape and now the neighborhood I moved into about a year ago has its own local brewery and so I've got a, a, a craft brewery within walking distance. It's uh, very fun to check out. All right. What's the uh, most unusual beery thing that you've done? <sighs> well, I do remember a, uh, a, a shop brew we did here at the shop with a bunch of people involved. It was a braggot, where we basically brewed 30 gallons of about a 1040 gravity beer and then dumped about 40 pounds of honey into it. And uh, that was pretty interesting because you definitely had some malt beer elements, but then the honey sources we used, which I think included some orange blossom, and uh, I brought, a, I think, a 10 or 12 pound jar of uh, uh, true buckwheat honey, really mm. dark stuff that I was tasting it as we were trying to incorporate it into the wort and uh, getting flavors of fennel and plum and molasses and all sorts of things. And so I think that gave it a real interesting character. That was, that was a fun brew to do and a real challenge. Yeah, yeah buckwheat honey is a challenging ingredient. Oh, yeah. um, all right, uh, what common wisdom brewing practice do you think is wrong or people have an overinflated sense of concern about? Hmm, well, there's been so much progress and development of uh, in materials and techniques that are available. Um, and, you know, and the big, you know, lesson that everybody gets told is sanitation, sanitation, sanitation. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the way I describe it to people is you, you need to be rigorous about this that every surface that that beer is going to come in contact with is sanitary and even the air spaces above it need to be sanitary right. too. Um, but you know from time to time I taste beers where there's too much residual sanitizer that was left on the surface and you can taste it in the beer. People need to understand beer is very good at absorbing flavors. <laughs> uh, I still remember a talk that uh, Dr. George Fix uh, gave a long time ago and uh, he was talking about you know, sanitizing your equipment, and he said, now here's an idea for your final equipment rinse. Why not use some beer? Beer's good. I mean, it's if it's coming straight out of a, a bottle or a can of, say, commercial stuff, it's sanitary as you drink it, you know, and 
It's good at absorbing flavors and things from the surface. And he paused for a moment and smiled and said, I think I just found a use for Keystone. <laughs> or, or the uh, leftover Bud Light uh, yeah, that your uh, friends bring over to the Super Bowl party. That's right. All right. Um, so what's an interesting discovery you've made about brewing over your career? Um, well, it comes back to variety. I mean, uh, when you... I mean, there were, there were beers I had never really encountered uh, before I joined uh, the Maltos Falcons. For instance, all the, the, the British approach to, to the real ales, the bitters and things. I'd never encountered those before. Um, I knew about pale ale, but, you know, it's a much broader, that's a little small little subset of the much broader range of, of English ales uh, that, uh, that I came to encounter after that. Um, there were, and, and just distinguishing the various different sort of German and continental styles. Uh, uh, why the German Pilsners taste different than the Bohemian Pilsners. And that, yes, there, of course there is a difference between Munich Dunkel and, and a traditional Bach. You know, they're, they taste similar, but they're really not the same beer. And I, I started to learn some of these distinctions and fleshed a lot of them out for myself when I was, you know, rewriting style guidelines because I really needed to look at these things and see, you know, is are these two beers really different? And if so, what really distinguishes one from the other? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, as a home brewer, you know, obviously you got a chance to be exposed to a lot of ingredients. So... Uh, real quick, off the top of your head, lightning reaction. Favorite malt? Um, I would say uh, dark caramel. Dark like caramel. 120 L caramel. All right. So favorite, uh, favorite hop? Oh uh, boy, that's a tough one. But probably Hallertau Middle Fruit. Very traditional. All right. And your favorite yeast? Um, that's another tough one. Um, you know the the. Uh, What's come to be known as a Sierra Nevada strain is certainly a, a very good one. It's neutral, expresses hops quite a bit, uh, but you know that that's a that's a very important consideration for me when I'm crafting a recipe uh, to brew on our brewery because we can we can produce several fractions of beer and each one can be fermented with a different yeast, mm -hmm. so we can experiment that way. Um, and I've even tried to do dual culture things, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Um, so I, I try to. We try for a certain amount of authenticity if we're brewing a classic style of beer, and that, come, and that important consideration there is getting the right yeast strain that's going to give you the profile that you want, because yeasts are very good at not only adding flavors, but they will also bring out certain flavors that are there and suppress other ones, and that's why we get such a radical difference in flavors and, and aromas between the same beer, two fractures of which were each fermented with a different yeast. You get some radically different results. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, what is something that you wish more people would drink or explore? Mead. Mead. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, for the record, Bruce produces a hell of a lot of mead and a hell of a lot of really good mead. Yeah, mead's an interesting thing. It, it, a lot of people come to it through home brewing for various reasons. Uh, some home winemakers do, but a lot of home winemakers, you know, they... they really focus on the grape-based wines, and some of them get into fruit wines. Not that many of them get into mead, but that's, that's starting to change a little bit. But uh, there is so much potential creativity with mead dip between the different varieties of honey, the different things you can flavor it with. Um, it's, it's ripe for a lot of experimentation and exploration. Well, I was going to say, at least from my point of view, mead is also really great for a lot of last-minute play because it's very flexible and very forgiving. You, you can do late stage adjustments to your mead you would never consider doing with beer for fear of contaminating it or screwing it up. Yeah, mead is much more forgiving that way.
right. Uh, as we get ready to uh, wrap up, uh, do you have other brewing thoughts that you think uh, the audience should know? Um, just, uh, you know, challenge yourself. Uh, I wrote a column for our club's newsletter many years ago that I called, called Dare to Fail. The point being, you learn a lot more from failure than you do from success. If you succeed, you're not exactly sure why. You're happy that you got what you wanted. But if you fail, you really want to know why. And you're going to study things, and you're going to try again uh, to get closer to you know, the success that you see. So, there you go. Take some risks. Avoid the fear of failure. Fail graciously and learn. That's it. All right. And then, uh, obviously, I think... You know, brewers and homebrewers, there's a lot of things going on and kicking around in our brains, not just beery things, although sometimes it really does seem like it's just beer. Uh, well, one, one thing I'd mention is that, that is almost universally true. Many, many homebrewers are also good home cooks, and they tend to look at home brewing as an extension of food preparation, food preservation, uh, and that's that's really great, and they're, they're actually beginning to adapt at matching beer with food and that sort of thing. So yep, Absolutely. All right. So, what non-beery thing are you fascinated by or obsessed with? Well, I'm a musician and uh, studied uh, music theory and composition at the university level. And so I'm active in, in as a classical musician, I, I play jazz, I play rock and roll, I play folk music, uh, and I write music and arrange it, and I'm really fascinated with the potential for arranging things for different collections of instruments and that sort of thing. So that's, that's one of my main hobbies other than homebrewing. Well, and I always remember one of my earlier introductions to your musical skills was uh, the Fibonacci uh, uh, oh, yeah. suite. Yeah, the guy who wrote that, I just... Uh, the guy who wrote that, I just saw him last night. He, he lives in Monterey. He's a, a professor of mathematics at the Naval Postgraduate School there and, uh, and a longtime musician. Um, and he teaches mathematics, so he, he wrote a piece of music based on the Fibonacci number sequence in various ways, not only pitches, but rhythmic relationships and all that. And he, he wrote it for a retuned piano that was tuned so the intonation isn't equal tempered, but it's just tempered, which is kind of a, too, too abstruse to go into. Uh, and he wrote it for four people sitting at one piano. So, so we had to put two, bench, two piano benches side to side and crowd in there. And it's, it's a very complex piece, and we did its world premiere a number of years ago uh, at a, uh, a special music festival for microtonal music. It's a fascinating piece. All right, there you go. That is definitely something non-beery that people can get obsessed by. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's our interview, and I'd like to thank Bruce for uh, sitting down before we have our club meeting. Uh, now we're going to go off and uh, have a couple of beers and uh, hopefully enjoy ourselves. But uh, in the meanwhile, thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Drew. And uh, don't forget, uh, there's lots of fascinating knowledge out there in your local homebrew club and your local homebrewing community. Uh, if you have somebody that you would like uh, for us to interview in the same sort of vein, uh, please let us know, and uh, we will get right on it. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. All righty. That was Drew's brewing mentor, Bruce Brode. Man, you are so lucky that you had a guy like that to uh, to hang with when you were starting to brew. Oh, and... Uh, and, and like I said, I mean, he's been brewing for a very, very long time, but he still has all these really great fertile ideas, and I really love to pick his brain about anything. And so, yeah, total, uh, total inspiration, totally the kind of guy that everybody should have uh, in their life to really kind of help keep you moving forward and to really, you know, challenge you. So I love Bruce. Hopefully it came out in the interview. Hopefully now that you guys have heard the interview, you love Bruce too. And just remember... If you have that kind of all-star that you want us to reach out to that you really think should uh, 
should get a little bit of love on a podcast and has something to share with the world, let us know, podcast.experimentalbrew.com. Uh, if you like this segment, please also let us know because we're always looking for feedback on these sorts of things. Uh, if you have other ideas for the show, make sure you get us those as well. Same thing, podcast.experimentalbrew.com or anywhere that you see Denny and I hanging out. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it'll be time for questions and maybe answers. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer, beer. beer. Alrighty, and as the ukulele graciously gets the heck out of here, it's time for Ask Denny and Drew, that part of the show where we try and come up with somewhat credible answers to your questions. Uh, first one is hmm. an easy one, so I'm going to take it. It comes from Matt Balling from the AHA. Uh, Matt's on the staff there, a wonderful guy. And he asks, what's the most unique kegerator, draft system, etc. that you've seen? Well, I'll let Drew answer that for himself in a minute. But uh, the most unusual, amusing, and interesting kegerator I've seen was at uh, the Roseburg Rendezvous uh, about a year ago down in Roseburg, Oregon. Great event. Bunch of homebrew clubs got together. And there was a guy there that had an R2-D2 with taps on the front of it. Uh, and we'll, we'll put the picture on the website because this thing is truly, truly remarkable. You won't believe it. It is so cute. I, I'm told that Pepsi put them out for a while as a as a Pepsi cooler, and this guy uh, managed to score one of them, uh, put taps on it. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't roll around the room delivering the beer to you, but let me tell you, there's nothing like going up to R2-D2 to fill your glass. Uh, definitely the most impressive one I've seen. Uh, how about you? Uh, well, you know, I think for me, that's <laughs> it, took me, it took me a moment to think about it, but I mean, look, I'm here in, uh, in California, and California, we have a hell of a car culture. Does that give you an idea where I'm going? Yeah, it does. I think I, I know what you're going to talk about. Yeah. So there is here in California, like I said, a a car culture uh, that is to beat the band. It, ha it, it helps when you uh, have absolutely no worries about rain rusting anything. So to me, the most interesting one I've ever seen is one that I've seen at several uh, NHCs that have been here in, in the West Coast, and that would be the Ale Camino. That's right. Yep, that was the one. That was the one. Yeah, so uh, the Ale Camino, uh, I freaking love this thing. Uh, basically, uh, <laughs> I always forget it. I, I forget who owns it, but they, uh, they basically have converted a good old-fashioned El Camino, you know, the old truck car into a two tap kegerator. I think it's got at least, it's got two taps on the back. I think they've added taps to it since then, but uh, yeah, it, it has a custom uh, custom name tag on it that says El Camino and has a, a California license plate with an American flag background that says homebrew. 
I, I'm looking at a picture of it right here, man. It is freaking gorgeous. Yeah. And, oh, and, and of course, I'd be remiss to forget to add uh, that on the back of it, not only is not only is it, I got the license plate and bumper stickers and all that sort of stuff saying everything about homebrew, but where normally you would see the uh, engine rating, you know, like 300 cc's or, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, no, the, the one on the back says 350 IBUs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Now, can you imagine if R2-D2 was riding around in the back of that? Even I mean, you know, there we go. That would be the best of both worlds. There you go. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I totally love that thing. It makes me laugh every time I see it and get just a tiny bit jealous. So yep, yep. there you go. There's my answer. Yeah, we'll put pictures of both the uh, the El Camino and uh, R2-D2 up on the website so you guys can see these because you'll get a kick out of them. So our next question comes from Schwann's Brewer on Brews Brothers, and Drew's going to handle this one. All right, it says here, yes, equipment, aka fermentation control and sanitation aside, in your opinions, what is the best way to become a better brewer? Ingredients, recipe creation, repetition, etc., etc., etc. Well... Schwarzenbrewer, you hit the right in the middle of your list there what I think is absolutely the most key thing that you can do to become a better brewer, and that is brew. Brew early, brew often, and brew again. Now, I'm not even saying something like what I know Denny does, where you know Denny reiterates the same recipe again and again until he gets it perfect in his obsessive little mind. I'm talking get into the brewery and make a mash, make a boil, make a fermentation. Do it again and again and again until it becomes muscle memory. And to me, more than anything else, I think that's what you need because more repetition you know, has more opportunities for you to make uh, uh, whoopsies and more whoopsies means more learning. That's more right. learning means better beer. So to me, by far and away, if you're going to take out temperature control and, and yeast health, it's repetition. Get your ass in yeah. the brewery and brew. Yep, it, it's so obvious, you know. You want to be a better brewer? Brew more. Um, and while I do like to repeat the same recipe over and over and over, it's like Drew says, just brew. Because every time you brew, you will learn something. You will solidify your skills. So, uh, you know, if, if you can't afford the, the big chest freezer, you don't have a place to put it, um, just get out there and brew more and do your best with what you got. Uh, that And that you will become a better brewer like that. Uh, God, don't you love these easy ones, man? Yeah, yeah, no, th those are kind of nice. Okay, so uh, next question comes from Jesse Engham via Facebook. Jesse says, I really appreciate your podcast for the education and entertainment. And we Woo! really appreciate you saying that, Jesse. Thanks to both of you. I've been making Belgian triples and blondes. Would love to get that Duval effervescence from a keg. Is there some way that I can do that? Uh, yeah, you can. Uh, Jesse mentions that he had, uh, you know, when he just cranked up the uh, carbonation level on his beer, he got a lot of foaming. Um, well, that means that you need to balance your system for the beer that you're drinking. And basically what that means is that uh, you use the resistance of the serving line to balance out the pressure in the beer. Now, there are formulas out there, and uh, we'll link to one. Uh, there's some great stuff on the AHA website, but we'll link to some information to help you find that. But 
basically you assume that your tubing has a resistance of something in the two or three PSI per foot range. So if you're trying to serve your beer, say, at uh, 12 PSI and your tubing has a resistance of two PSI per foot, you need, in essence, six feet of tubing because when that beer comes out of the faucet, you want it to be at basically zero pressure. You need those two things to, uh, to even out. So the first thing you need to do is find out what the resistance of your beer line is. And like I said, there are some, uh, some generic numbers you can use and we'll post yeah. a link to all that. And it's going to remember, it's going to, it's going to vary based on the diameter of your line. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, and, and always use official serving line for your beer. I know that people like to, uh, cheap out and try to use uh, hardware store stuff. You may get lucky, but a lot of that stuff has a rough interior, which will cause nucleation of the uh, CO2 and cause even more foaming. So give yourself a break, start off going in the right direction and use real beer line. Look up the resistance of the beer line, figure out what level you want to carbonate your beer to, and then just use enough beer line to balance out the pressure that you've carbonated the beer at. And you should be having that beautiful, beautiful duval look in your glass. Uh, nice, fluffy, foamy head on the beer with, uh, without getting an entire glass full of foam. Got anything to add? Yeah, so here's the, here's the thing. I mean, really, the magic is that between the resistance of the beer line and the height that the liquid has to go up, like if you're uh, going to a faucet that is above your kegs, both of those add resistance, and the idea is basically you want to add up all that, and the numbers are out there, to essentially get zero PSI at the at the faucet. Uh, any uh, you know, much above that, and you're going to you're going to get like the massive geyser of foam. So, what this means is that yeah, you do actually have to think about having different beer lines for different sort of carbonated level beers. So that's the reason why I, I have lines that are there for my lower carbonation beers, like my milds. I have sort of the broad swath of normal carbonated beers, you know, 2.5 volumes of CO2. And then I have a couple of uh, really long lines that I use for uh, my Saisons, my Belgians, anything that I've really goosed up the volume on or the CO2 on. Uh, now, you can see this in action as well with, say, like the Blickman beer gun. You know, if you've ever played around with those, you see that it comes with like 900,000 feet of beer line, you know, that you hook to the keg before it goes into the little device that you, then goes in the bottle, right? And that's what that line is doing. It's essentially trying to drop your your PSI at the opening to zero because that's the way that you get it with the, with the least amount of uh, trouble. Now, if you're hard plumbing and you have uh, the desire to have a little extra, you know, uh, cash expenditure out there, you can actually find some of the really nice high-end faucets will have a resistive gate, you know, like a little switch on the faucet that you can actually use to sort of add or subtract resistance. And that can help you as well and give you a way to kind of dial it in ahead of time. If you still want to be a relatively frugal, frugal is a nice word for cheap, right? Yeah. Relatively, a relatively frugal humber. Uh, I'll put a link to a friend of mine, uh, Craig Chaplin, made a really good resistive gate addition to a beer line using an epoxy mis uh, mixer. 
that goes in line and actually adds up resistance to the line so you can have a shorter line instead of having like, yeah, 10, 12 foot monstrosities hanging out in your kegerator. So there are a couple different ways to do it, but really, really the key is get down to zero at your faucet. Yep. That's, that's the, the thing you're going for too. So, uh, okay. One more today and it's yours, buddy. All right. This is from took a listen from the more beer forum. Well, took a listen. Thanks for taking a listen. Now, of course, I probably mispronounced your name just to make that joke, but oh well. All right. <laughs> Does it really matter to know and measure your water to grain mash ratio, or is it okay to just eyeball it and make a loose oatmeal? I used to measure, but now I just eyeball. I bet after all these years, I'm still close to having the same ratio of grain to H2O, but just eyeball it. Curious minds want to know. Well, at some point, I know we're going to test this about mash thickness. Uh, it's not on the docket just yet, uh, but... Truthfully, I will tell you for myself, since most of my grain bills end up in the same range, uh, I usually, since I've been using the same equipment for a number of years, I usually just eyeball it. I know how far to take my HLT down. I know exactly what sort of consistency I'm looking for. And yeah, I mean, I used to meticulously measure it. Now, what I do still meticulously measure is I still meticulously measure the amount of sparge water I'm adding since I batch sparge. Yeah, and that I want to make sure I get the right amount of water in there so I'm getting the right amount of volume out the other side into the kettle. Uh, should I measure my volumes going into the mash tun? Yes, I should. Do I? No, I don't. Why? Because I'm lazy. But I still make pretty I still make pretty damn good beer and I'm not particularly fussy about my process. Now, Denny on the other hand is more fussy about his process. Do you measure your strike water? I, I do, but uh, I would agree that you don't really have to. I do it just because that's what I do. That's what I've always done. Uh, but I would say to took a listen, sure, go ahead and eyeball it. There is really no big problem with that with a couple of minor caveats, right? Um, number one, I found that going to a thinner mash, that means increasing my uh, liquor to grist ratio, actually raised my efficiency a bit. So you want to remember that. And the other thing is that drastic changes in the amount of water you're using will affect your mash pH also. So you need to be aware of that. If you use a whole lot more water or a whole lot less water, uh, from one mash to another, that will throw off your pH, and you need to account for that. But minor changes, I mean, are not going to matter. It sounds like took a listen, used to measure, doing it by eyeball, he still ends up in about the same range, and that's not going to have a major effect on either your pH or your uh, your efficiency. So if that works for you, man, go for it, do it. Um, I'm still going to measure, but that's just because that's the kind of guy I'm. Uh, so, yeah, eyeball it. It's fun. It's easy. Go for it. Not a problem. Okay, man. I think I think that those were all some reasonably credible answers, don't you? Uh, I'm going to take the fifth. But yes. <laughs> a fifth of what is what we want to know. Okay. De- definitely, not, not, definitely not a fifth of Malort. <laughs> really, really. 
So uh, every week we like to talk about uh, a couple things other than beer, just to let you know what well-rounded guys we are. I'm, I guess I'm a lot more well-rounded than Drew is these days. And first thing that we want to just kind of mention is that uh, we've lost another great musician. Um, Prince Prince passed last week. Uh, if you're listening to this, I guess it's going to be a few weeks ago. But uh, a great loss. I have been a Prince fan pretty much from early on in his career. I wouldn't say from the beginning. I knew that he was very popular and well-loved. I was hugely amazed and surprised at the... uh, at the amount of the outpouring uh, and, 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 you know, seeing how many people he had affected. Uh, so, um, darn it, that's got to just stop happening, huh? Yeah. All right, Denny. Yeah. You're going to need to prepare the big red button because I'm about to drop something here. Okay. You ready? You ready? Yep. All right. 2016 can go. <laughs> this year sucks. Everybody's dying and it kills me so there that's my reaction 2016 okay there you go that's that's drew's reaction and uh you know what what else can you say that pretty much sums it all up so uh so let's let's move on to this other thing that you've come up with uh which sounds really really interesting right so uh i spend a lot of time on youtube because of nerd and nerd and seeking entertainment. And apparently YouTube has figured out that I really like cooking and nerdy things. I don't know how it's figured that out. Uh, but I stumbled a, a couple of weeks back. I stumbled on a channel that's been running for a few years now called 18th century cooking with James Townsend's and son. Uh, and it's on YouTube. Now the company is a supplier of goods and costuming for people who are doing colonial reenactments of like, 17th and century, 17th and 18th century America, uh, period. And, you know, so all, all the sort of stuff that you expect from reenactors, but the YouTube channel is so cool because it is filled with, you know, these guys doing historical cooking recipes with both historical techniques and historical equipment, but also kind of giving you like the, okay, here's how you can do it. Now that we have things like, Oh, I don't know, ovens that actually work and don't require somebody to stoke a fire. Um, and they really are going through a lot of old cookbooks and pulling up recipes from those cookbooks and oftentimes kind of pulling multiple sources together to try and figure things out. And you very quickly figure out that uh, early American cooking was absolutely obsessed with nutmeg as a spice. So I just think it's cool. It, and they do actually have some questions about beer that they answer. They do a regular Q&A segment. And so I'm going to try and dig in and uh, pull up some more of their information that they have about colonial beer recipes. Man, this is like right up my alley, and I guarantee you that I will be checking this out this afternoon. Uh, sounds way, way cool. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I, I, I was really excited when I stumbled on it. Yeah, man, I, I, I'm glad you did, because I don't think I ever would have found it. Okay, it's time for the question of the week. And this week, it's more of a statement, because I'm going to say... Cezanne, Cezanne, Cezanne. Are you ready to find out what it takes to make a great Cezanne and if you have a yeast issue with it? That's what the experiment is. 
check it out on the website and get involved. So, Drew, what the hell did we do this week? Uh, I don't know. We sat around a microphone and talked. Yeah, we did that. Oh, you want to know what we talked about? Okay, great. Oh, so oh yeah. We had, yeah. So we had some uh, really great feedback. Uh, we are wrapping up our service dogs, uh, our Freedom Service Dogs charity drive. So make sure you get in there onto Patreon. Give us some support. Throw the dogs a bone. Uh, so, you know, because, hey, dogs, bones, joke, right? All right. <laughs> uh, we talked about our plans at uh, HA Homebrew Con. Uh, and uh, really, there are a lot of plans. Uh, we also have a calendar that's gone up on the website, by the way, to show us show everybody where we're going to be at. So if you want to stalk us or potentially hire a murder plot, there you go. Now you can know where we're going to be. Uh, and, you know, you get book signs. We talked about the Ryan Hutzkeboot and whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. We talked about why it makes us sad when mommy and daddy fight over trademarks. We talked about human alone and no, 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 a.k.a. how dry hops add bitterness to beer. Uh, we walked through our Saison experiment, uh, the thing that we're really hoping that people will get a chance to, to play around with. And then finally, my my basic piece of excitement for this week, which is saying something since we talked about a Saison experiment, was our unknown all-star segment. Really, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Let us know if you did. If you didn't, let us know that too, because that's important. And most importantly, if you have somebody that you think is an unknown, unknown all-star, reach out and tell us so that we can make them no longer unknown. Uh, I was going to say, and and don't forget about the, the 18th century cooking with James Townsend and son on YouTube. That sounds like way too cool to miss. Well, there you go. All right. That was our, our episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. Catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, I'm on just about every beer forum out there. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or post your comments on our website. Or if you want to email each of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Remember, always brew experimentally. Or brew with the new recipes that you can find in the brand new brewing book, Homebrew All-Stars. Oh, and Brew Wacky. <laughs> and we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. <laughs>